I have text on this Christmas morning come from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore the Lord Himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and thou shalt call his name Emmanuel. The word Emmanuel means God with us. And the purpose of Christmas is revealed to us then by the word itself. It's actually a compound of two words, the word Christ and the word Mass. The word Christ refers to the role of Christ as our Messiah. We've talked in the past about the three terms, Lord, Jesus, Christ. Whenever we see the word Lord in our Bible, it's reference to His deity. Whenever we see the word Jesus, it's a reference to His humanity. Whenever we see the word Christ, it's a a reference to His total concept as the Messiah. The one who was prophesied in the Old Testament, the one who came uh, at the nativity scene, the one who gave Himself on the cross, one who rose again, ascended to the Father, and is coming back. The entire concept of God's salvation plan is revealed to us in the word Christ. So when we have the word Lord, His deity, when we have the word Jesus, His humanity, and when we have the word Christ, His being the Messiah, this word Christmas begins with that, with an emphasis upon the sent one, the Savior of the world, the Messiah. And then we have the word Mass. The word Mass means celebration. So Christmas is the celebration of Christ. The true intent of Christmas is that we might celebrate God becoming incarnated in human flesh and living among us. The Gospel of John chapter 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the true intent of celebration that we are to observe each year is to celebrate the fact that God Himself became flesh. He clothed Himself with humanity in order that He might be tempted and tested in every manner in which we are tempted and tested, that He might meet the obligations of God's plan perfectly, and then that He might use that as a payment for our debt, dying in our place, the wages of sin being death. He died in our place, and having power over death and the grave, He came out of the grave alive again, So His resurrection is assurance that though we be dead, yet shall we live. The intent of Christmas is the celebration of the sent one of God who became the Savior of the world. Matthew presents our Lord Jesus Christ. The entire Gospel of Matthew focuses upon the reality that Christ is the promised King. And yet Mark, the next gospel, presents Jesus Christ as servant. 
In Matthew, he's presented as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And in Mark, he's presented as the servant of mankind. Luke then presents Jesus in his humanity. Everything that we read in the Gospel of Luke is focused upon the humanity of Jesus Christ. And then we go to the Gospel of John and it's his deity. The realization that this truly was God who lived among us. And so frequently when we get into the Christmas story, we focus on the Gospel of Luke because it is there that the humanity is revealed of Christ, God's Son, the Lord Himself, taking upon Himself the form of humanity. Luke wrote this concerning the birth of Christ. In chapter 2, verse 8 and following, he said, There were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. The emphasis, as Luke uh, continues, says, And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. What a marvelous occasion when God became flesh and dwelt among us. We don't know exactly when the birth of Christ was. We can pretty well conclude it was not December 25th. Nevertheless, it's a day that has been set aside for centuries now that we might be able to focus upon the birth of Christ. I suppose had it been important that we know the time of his birth, the actual date of his birth, the Bible would certainly have revealed that to us. As some of you have heard me say, I think probably if I were to hazard a guess when it really was probably sometime around September in the fall of the year. We knew know that they had gone to register for the taxes. They wouldn't do that in the winter time, nor would shepherds be in the field watching their flocks by night in the winter time. But through the years the tradition has been and uh, certainly because we don't have an accurate date, uh, there's no sense in messing with the date and trying to adjust the date. Because the seven annual feasts that Israel observed, the first four of those were fulfilled exactly to the day and even the very hour, some of them, to what the Old Testament prophecies had revealed. Uh, and there are three yet to be fulfilled. The second advent of Christ will bring about the uh, judgment, a time of judgment, and then 
a time of atonement and then a time of tabernacles, uh, they're going to be fulfilled according to Bible prophecy at the exact time. Because we only have one advent of Christ spoken of clearly, and yet we see even in the language of the Hebrew in the Old Testament, there were in fact two advents of Christ. The first one where He came to be our, our uh, servant, and the second one where He will come to wear the crown as King. And so we celebrate this time of year because that's uh, the traditional time and uh, it's fitting that we should celebrate the fact that He became flesh and dwelt among us. Isaiah the prophet, some 800 years before the time of Christ's birth, spoke concerning this event in Isaiah chapter 9, beginning at verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Some Bible teaches, J. Vernon McGee is one that comes to mind. He's got it all straight now because he's there but uh, and been able to get everything uh, straight. But he, along with some others, believe that this passage in Isaiah does not speak of the birth of Christ, but rather speaks of the second coming of Christ. I think that's because they fail to recognize that both of the advents of Christ, His birth and His second coming, are alluded to in this passage. In the Old Testament, there is no mention of this period of time in which we live called the church age. There is a continuity in the prophets that move through the beginning of their prophecy to the end and it does not make provision for this period of time when the Jews rejected Christ and the Gentiles then were grafted in and the Jews were cut off. That became a revelation that was revealed in the early days following the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ as the Apostle Paul and the other writers began to look at Isaiah and some of the other prophets in a little different light and understand there is two advents of Christ. His first coming at His birth, and coming in that role to serve as Mark presents Him, as servant, to meet our obligations, to pay our debt, to deliver us from sin, to provide for us eternal life in Christ. He's coming again as King of kings and Lord of lords, as Matthew presents. So Isaiah has them connected together. Unto us a child is born. It's a beautiful statement because 
it identifies the beginning of the fulfillment of the plan of God that had been revealed only in prophecy and in anticipation in the days that were past. The celebration of Christ requires a nativity scene. For in that scene, God, the eternal creator of the heavens and the earth, the one who created all things and by whom all things exist, he took upon himself the form of man, became clothed in humanity in order that he might be qualified to pay our debt. And so he came as a child. Unto us a child is born. Isaiah had said, a virgin will conceive and will bear a son and he will be called Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And in that nativity scene long ago, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ took human form that he might become then the means of our redemption. Unto you, a child is born. As a result of Adam's sin, man fell. And because we are born birth defective then, while we have a body and a soul, we do not have a human spirit until we are born spiritually, born from above, and have that life that is able to communicate and understand and relate to the things of God. And so God took upon Himself the form of a child in human birth that He might meet our obligation. Not only did Isaiah declare that a child would be born, but he said, unto us a son is given. The statement, unto us a child is born, is in the nativity scene in Bethlehem of Judea. The statement concerning a son is given is outside the gates of Jerusalem on a mount called Calvary or Golgotha, the place of the skull where the crucifixion of Christ occurred. A son was born and that son is given to you and to me on our behalf as a part of the Christmas story. Although God spared Abraham when God had said to Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac. I want you to take him to a mountain that I will show you and I want you to offer him as a sacrifice unto me. We remember that Abraham was 99 years old when Isaac was conceived And God had promised him years before that he would be the father of a great multitude and that he would be the father of many nations. There didn't seem to be any evidence of that. But finally, that son was born and Abraham recognized that in this child is the promise of God throughout all generations. The world is going to be blessed and uh, there is there are going to be many nations as a result of this. And then God said, Abraham, take that son and offer him as a sacrifice at a place I will show you. It was a three-day journey 
from where they were to the place where God appointed him to offer that sacrifice. And that spot to which he took him is where Jerusalem is located and where the cross scene, the crucifixion, took place. As they started to climb the mountain, the son said to the father, where's the offering? We've got the knife, we've got the fire. Uh, Where is the offering? And Abraham said, my son, God will supply himself a sacrifice. As I got into the language of the Bible, the Hebrew and the Old Testament and and in the Greek of the New Testament, I, I that was one of the passages that I went to as I began to study Hebrew. I wanted to say God will provide Himself as a sacrifice. Didn't work out that way. It said simply that God would provide for Himself a sacrifice. We know that He provided Himself as that sacrifice, but at that passage we find Abraham saying that God will provide for Himself a sacrifice. And then, of course, we remember the story that as he, as he bound his son Isaac and placed him upon the altar, they erected, and he prepared with a knife to take his life as an offering unto God as God had instructed that God stopped him. And God said to him, Abraham, now I know. And there was a ram caught in the thicket. And God provided that ram for a sacrifice. And together he and Isaac offered that sacrifice up to the Lord. The idea and the understanding of requiring of Abraham that son sets a pattern for what God would reveal in prophecy and through history later that he would offer his own son upon the cross. No stayed hand, no ram caught in the thicket when it came to the scene on Mount Calvary, but the brutal and savage slaying of the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. The celebration of Christ requires the nativity scene, but any nativity scene is void if it does not have that cross as a feature of it. As I've said before, the Christmas tree celebrates that crucifixion of Christ upon the tree. It ought to have a cross in it. And one year I got real carried away with that idea, and so I strung the lights and the symbol of a cross uh, in the center of the tree because we need to understand and recognize the provision that God has made. In Romans chapter 4, verse 25, it says, speaking of Abraham, he, spared, he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in the faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what God had promised, he was able to deliver, and therefore it was imputed to him, credited to him, for righteousness, for conformity to the plan. Now it was not written for his sake only, 
that it was imputed to him, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. For unto us a child is born. The nativity scene, unto us the Son is given the crucifixion scene. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, Isaiah said. This is, of course, a reference to his second advent, to the future kingdom. And that kingdom has begun spiritually in the heart of believers today, but it will become an experiential reality at the second advent of Christ and our year-long study of the uh, prophecy and the events of uh, current events that are going on today and how they are fulfilled in Bible prophecy will become a reality when Jesus comes back and establishes an earthly kingdom for a thousand years before we usher in eternity. So the celebration of Christ requires not only the nativity scene and the crucifixion scene at Calvary, but in the future, the kingdom as it is established and Christ himself sits upon the throne of David in the city of Jerusalem and all the world uh, uh, does homage to him and all the world then is changed uh, with the removal of the curse from the earth and uh, uh, the ferocity of animals gone, uh, the old sin nature of humans having been modified uh, with our resurrection bodies eliminated, and then with the tribulational saints going into that thousand-year millennial reign. It shall be a government where Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. Isaiah continued, and his name shall be called. Now there are words that best describe the true intent of Christmas found in the names that are identified here and as it spells out his purpose and mission. And his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God. The Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. The word wonderful is translated from the Hebrew word Pele. It's not an adjective describing a quality of the counselor, but it's actually a name identifying his name, wonderful. The same word is used in the book of Judges, chapter 13, verses 17 through 18, to identify the name of the angel of the Lord that appeared to the father of Samson to uh, inform uh, Samson's father, his name was Manoah, to inform Manoah that he and his wife in their old age were going to have a son and they were to call him Samson and he would be a judge of Israel. The... Lord, in revealing the common birth of Samson, said, He said unto Manoah, 
the angel of the Lord said unto Manoah, what is, no, let me rephrase that. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? And when are these things going to come to pass that you've spoken of? My wife and I in our old age having a son. And the angel of the Lord said unto him, Why askest thou after my name, seeing it is secret? We read that in the English, and it appears that he didn't tell him what his name was. He just said it was a secret. But the secret to understanding that is the language of the Old Testament in the Hebrew. And uh, the word actually means miracle. It is used here uh, to identify then uh, the his name is while it's translated secret or wonderful, his name actually means miracle, and uh, neither tongue nor pen could ever record just how wonderful how uh, it is a miracle concerning the birth of the Christ child. His manifest existence was through the miracle of the virgin birth and his sinless life was a miracle of committed conscience to his heavenly Father. In Psalm chapter 119, verse 129, the psalmist said, Thy testimonies are wonderful, therefore doth my soul keep them. So wonderful identifies then the miracle of God and that's followed then by the word counselor. Counselor is translated from the Hebrew word yaats and it means one who provides advice to others. God is the mighty counselor. In the book of Romans we discover that there is no one that can advise God. Sometimes we try, give God a few suggestions or give Him a little advice about what it would take to make us happy or how He could work out a situation uh, that we have. Uh, and it's at those times I can almost hear the audible voice, yes, grasshopper, and where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Job heard those words audibly, and I sense them from time to time as I question God in the action that's taking place, and why not follow this suggestion? God is the counselor of all. He's the designer. It's appropriate he would write the proper handbook for our living life when he designed our life to begin with. Some Hebrew manuscripts such as the Masoretic text include the word wonderful and counselor together, Pale-Yah-Alls, as an actual title. The word wonder from Pale is indicative then of that which is miraculously accomplished by God, thus the word miracle. The two words of the title actually form in grammar an appositional genitive that may be written this way, a wonder of a counselor, a wonderful counselor. The term counselor is a word that's also translated and used in parallel with the word king 
so many times in Scripture. So that the emphasis that here implies that the God-like character is that of a God-king as He provides guidance for us. So Romans chapter 11, verse 34 and following says, For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been His counselor, who hath given first to Him, and then shall be recompensed unto Him again? For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things to whom the glory be forever. Amen. Psalm chapter 33, 11 says, The counsel of the Lord standeth forever, the thoughts of His heart to all generations. He is the wonderful counselor. And then the writer Isaiah says, The mighty God. This phrase really declares who Christ is. He is the mighty God. John worded it in the Gospel of John, beginning in chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, and all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and that light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Emmanuel, God with us. As God takes upon Himself the form of humanity and lives among us, He truly is the mighty God. And then Isaiah said, not only is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, but He is the everlasting Father. John chapter 1 verse 3 we just read, And all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 5 and going to verse 17, who is the image of the invisible God, the first begotten of every creature, for by Him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in the earth, visible and invisible, whether there be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by Him and for Him. And He is before all things and by all, and all things by Him consist. He is the everlasting Father, the Son of God, and yet the everlasting Father. The reference to Christ as the Son of God has to do with His taking upon Himself human form. In that humanity, we have the creation of the Sonship of God, but within that humanity is the indwelling embodiment of God Himself. And so, while He is in His humanity the Son of God, He is in reality the everlasting Father. We don't have three gods, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We have three aspects of the same God, and uh, His Sonship identifies His role as Jesus Christ. 
The word Father identifies His authority and origin of all things. And then Isaiah identifies Him as the Prince of Peace. Seems to be a paradox when Jesus in His earthly ministry said, I didn't come to bring peace on earth. I came to bring division. Because of me, daughter-in-law is going to be set against her mother-in-law. A brother is going to be set against brother. There's going to be division because of me. I did not come to bring peace, but I came to bring division. When I was invited to speak at the first annual global leadership peace conference, I almost choked because it was such a contradiction to Jesus' establishment that He didn't come to bring peace on this earth between men. And yet He is called the Prince of Peace. Some of my students said, there's no way that you can speak at that conference on peace. And of course, as I've said, I visualized a peace conference being composed of 5,000 students with placards and signs saying, make love, not war. And uh, uh, that was my conception. So I said to him, you'll need to let me know what your agenda is and what your purpose is. He was the head of the humanities department at UCLA. And uh, he said, I'll, I'll email you some things out, Pastor, and let you know what we're going to be doing. It was a leadership conference. It was made up of educators and government uh, officials, uh, the various ambassadors from various countries, and and then educators in general. And uh, so I said, well, yeah, I'll go speak to that conference. I told the students I'm going to jump up on the platform and I'm going to raise my arm and say, Jesus said I came to bring a sword, not peace. But didn't quite do it that way, of course. But had the opportunity then to identify the reality that this provision of God was of such that we can have peace in the midst of war. We can have peace in the midst of conflict because He came to bring peace between man and God. The peace that will be established upon this earth will only be a pseudo-peace during His thousand-year millennial reign because there will still be those tribulational uh, survivors that will be in their natural bodies and they will propagate children for a thousand years. And the Bible says there will be such a rebellion that the number of those in rebellion are more than the stars of the sky and the sands of the sea for numerality. Because it's the nature of man that has to be changed. So Colossians chapter 1 verse five through seven, uh, 15 through 17 made that statement, 
who is in the image of God, the firstborn of every creature, for by him all things were created and that are in heaven and are upon the earth, visible and invisible, will it be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him, for he is before all things, and all things consist. He is the prince of peace. The word prince is translated from the Hebrew word sar. It refers to the head, the one in authority, the head. And the word peace, the Hebrew word that most of us are familiar hearing in various places uh, uh, in life today, the word shalom, the greeting of one Jew to another, shalom, is the word peace. But it goes more than that. It actually means safe. It's the Hebrew word for meaning safe. We are safe in our relationship with God the Father through our acceptance of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ the Son to be our Redeemer, to pay our debt, and to give us His own righteousness. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 and following, Jesus said, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth, I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. It skips son-in-law against mother-in-law, because that's just natural anyway. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. So what is this that the angels sang then in Luke chapter 2, verse 14, to the shepherds, glory to God in the highest and on earth goodwill toward men? Jesus didn't come to bring peace between men, but peace between individuals and God. Isaiah 9-7 then expresses the true intent of Christmas, of the increase of His government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon His kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. The true intent of Christmas is to establish an eternal government. The true intent of Christmas is to establish an eternal peace. The true intent of Christmas is to fulfill the Davidic covenant. The kingdom will be established with judgment and justice, and the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. It will not happen until Jesus comes again and changes this world. Till then, we must focus on our relationship with God and we must spread that good news of the Christmas story, of the celebration, of the nativity scene in the cross, the empty tomb, and the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
God's true intent of Christmas was to become like us in order for us to become like Him. In the garden, man attempted to become like God. As a result, God had to become like man in order to redeem us from our sin. The writer of Hebrews says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For very he took on him not the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. So the purpose of Christmas is summed up in our weekly conclusion in our message that it all begins at salvation. For all have sinned, the Bible says, and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Bible says, with the heart man believes unto righteousness, but with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So you have a very meaningful Christmas as we close our service this morning. Our Father, we ask your blessing upon each as we go about our individual ways and especially in our family activities today. May you be honored. May we recognize the true meaning, the celebration of a Savior, of a Messiah, the reality that in order to accomplish that, you became flesh to live among us. Give us, we pray, a heart for representing your kingdom to others until Jesus shall establish it finally and firmly forever. For we pray it in his name. Amen.